Welcome back to the Global Report, a current events podcast. I'm your host, Morgan DeWicke, and my co-host is Professor William Lawrence. In this episode, we continue our discussion on the Red Sea crisis, the Houthis, and broader implications for international shipping. We talk about how the Red Sea affects the Middle East region, countries like China and the United States, and broader international concerns. To stay up to date on future episodes, visit globalreportpodcast.com. Do we want to live in a world where um, one country can just inflict pain on everybody and inflict pain on their immediate neighbors and the wider community because they have a grievance, right? Or do we want to live in a world where these grievances get worked out, like in the World Trade Organization or at the UN or the World Bank, where you know grievances happen, but the solutions aren't wep- just weapons, you know, particularly when it comes to global commerce. And uh, that's that whole proposition is being tested right now. And, if I could add one other point, there are a lot of people in Congress saying, well, Biden shouldn't be able to hit the Houthis without an act of war. And this is a debate that's been going on my entire life. Uh, and every time the U.S. takes an action, the the part, the other party in Congress says we should have authorized that. And yet, if if uh, if a debate happens and they need to authorize, they almost always kick the can and say, well, I'll just let the president do what they want to do. Because they don't want to take responsibility either way because their constituents right. are either just anti-war or pro-war, you know, and they're not or whatever. And and And, and the fact of the matter is, um, uh, unfortunately, whoever is the U.S. executive, uh, and and uh, and in um, uh, and and the heads of state of other maritime nations, are going to have to have mechanisms where they can by by immediately defend shipping without an act of war being declared. Right? We're almost going to have to have, like with terrorism, this sort of constant state of vigilance it doesn't involve just declaring war all the time, right? And uh, we're going to have to have um, an understanding of how vital this is to, to, um, uh, I often ask the question in these situations, you know, what if the U S just went away? Like, would that solve a problem? Cause the Americans love to hit, you know, blame America for all the problems in the world. If the Americans went away right now, the Houthis would still keep hitting shipping because <laughs> he'd be mad about Israel. The, the, the European nations would just step in with the Americans were in sort of defending global co- uh, commerce. And um, uh, the, uh, the exact same conflict would continue because, you know, this, this is the wrong way to solve a set of problems that weren't even caused by the actors in this um, conflict. Let me also say that um, just like globalization has components from everywhere, shipping has components from everywhere. So we have flags of what dozens of nations, ships owned mm-hmm. by dozens of nations, uh, uh, um, cargoes contributed by scores of nations. We have crews from one set of nations and captains from another set of nations, and we have uh, products going to and from countries all over the place. And the idea that somehow the Houthis can single out a subset of ships they want to hit because one of those boxes, you know, has, has Israelis in it isn't is to misunderstand global shipping because every one of those big tankers has inputs from what 80 countries, you know, like the big mm-hmm. ones. And so, and so this idea you can sort of separate out and punish one nation um, by hitting, but their aspect of global shipping, you know, is a little bit like, um, I don't know, bombing a parking lot and hoping you hit all the Japanese cars because you're mad at Japan or something. Right, if you understand right. what I'm saying, like it's, it's just, it's just a really dumb way to go about uh, international well, affairs well, and inflicting. Let pain. me put it this way. I, yeah. I think I've, I've seen a couple posts online of yeah. people saying, well, well, this, 
this is perfect evidence of why, you know, each nation needs to be legitimate and have their own ships. And it's like, yeah, think about what the what this would look like if let's say so every ship today, right, is it's registered in one country. It's it's operated by a company in another country. It's owned by uh, an individual in another country. It's got crew from three different or four different countries. None of them have any association with the country of register. Uh, yeah. So it's very diverse, right? And it's totally interconnected globally. Think about the instance where if the ship's passing through the Bobblemendib Strait, let's say this vessel was, was registered to Spain, had Spanish crew, was Spanish flag. It then only becomes Spain's problem. But when it's so interconnected, now it's everyone's but, problem. By the way, that would you ship rather be solving exist. the problem just right. as yourself, Spain? Yeah. Or would you yeah. rather be solving the issue as a global community exactly. and all coming together and saying, no, we all have a bone in this fight. We're all responsible. Right. We all benefit from international shipping and we need to hold each other accountable. I think it's very obvious that there are immense benefits to the international aspect of shipping. Um, And this makes it a much more, I'll say, easier tackled uh, problem to tackle, because now we're not getting into that declaration of war. um, Hullabaloo, right? It's not saying, oh, should Spain declare war? Should the United States declare war? We're now saying, how do we as an international community respond to this crisis? Yep. Let me ask you a question I've been meaning to ask you anyway, and so we'll use the podcast for it. But um, one of the issues that came up when I was looking at mitigating factors nations can take uh, in this new world of things like Houthi attacks is training. Apparently, if you train your crew in how to deal with uh, fires caused by drones and missiles, uh, the outcome can be much better than a crew that doesn't have that training. If you train your crew in how to deal with a hostage situation or a, a foreign country to board you, the outcomes can be much better than if you don't. That the, that the, the companies that are low-balling and putting untrained crews on ships uh, put themselves in a far worse situation. I wonder if you could just say a little bit about um, how important it is to have uh, a quality people on ships. Yeah, I think... Without a doubt, um, a lot of training you receive or you're required to receive under international standards covers, um, I won't say anti-piracy, but it covers, you know, shipboard firefighting, uh, ship security. Um, Those are all sorts of things that are sort of required. And one of the big issues we have today is as a result of the war in Ukraine, uh, and the san- widespread sanctions on Russia that I think Russia wasn't anticipating, we've seen the massive emergence of what we call the dark fleet. And so mm-hmm. in response to all the sanctions, right, what Russia did is they basically manipulated the market and they went out and they bought up all the oil tankers they could. And they said, we're going to, we're going to own these tankers. We're going to register them in these flags that, don't have the either don't have the resources or are really controlled by foreign interests um and they say you know we're not gonna need to adhere to safety standards we're gonna hire crew from wherever pay them whatever there's no oversight um and it's become a huge issue and the safety standards of these vessels has deteriorated and in many cases these vessels are are very old 
they really um, are seeing the end of life. And so that lack of oversight, and there's really no enforcement mechanisms unless these vessels are within territorial waters of a country that um, they can go out and basically seize them. But that's rare in many cases. Um, And these vessels in this dark fleet are really plying the waters of just a handful of countries, right? But they're also having to pass through these international straits. And so it's been a huge challenge. And I think the International Maritime Organization is going to have to decide how this gets disrupted. Um, I had actually formulated a paper, I think last year, or the year before, really, uh, initially, this was being done through ship to ship transfers. And so my concept was, well, under the international language, ship to ship standards are really only governed within um, territorial waters. There was no provision, there is no provision under the international standards for ship-to-ship transfers occurring on the high seas. There's, there's no specific mention of the high seas as it pertains. So that was an issue uh, which still hasn't been addressed. And then really, there needs to be an enforcement mechanism, right? If there is ship-to-ship transfers going on, who has the direct oversight and enforceability of that? Is it the flag registry? Is it the country um, whose territorial waters that this ship-to-ship transfer is being conducted in? Um, Those were a lot of questions that went unanswered. And so the market has just been allowed to evolve and to the point where countries have just thrown their hands up and said, well, you know, we're just going to trade and and so be it and deal with it. Um, I think it's also a challenge from the perspective of the United States and those seeking to impose the sanctions of global energy prices, right? Uh, If we had really worked hard to enforce the sanctions, we would have seen a massive spike in the price of oil, which is totally, it's political suicide, right? And at the time that we were imposing these sanctions, we were already dealing with massive inflation, so now let's 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 call these these constituents up in the United States and say, hey, we know you're struggling. You're you're trying to work paycheck to paycheck. We know you're you're barely making it here uh, because things cost more right now. But we we really got to stick it to these Russians and we got to jack up the price of oil by disrupting their oil trade, right? Really, in 2008, what was the tip of the ice? What was the tipping point? Excuse me for the global depression, mortgage defaults, things like that. Look at what the price of oil was. It was exponentially higher than it ever had been. And when you're somebody who's trying to get to work week to week, you're trying to make a paycheck, suddenly you have to make a decision between, am I going to pay for gas or am I going to pay for this mortgage that I really shouldn't have in the first place, which is a whole nother issue. Or my prescription medication. Right. (laughs) So it just, it it becomes this enormous challenge to, those like the United States who are trying to uphold these these global norms uh, and these values and this rules-based international order um, to decide where are we going to put our chips. Is the primary responsibility of defending global shipping uh, in the um, in the Red Sea and in future crises like this um, the U.S. Navy and its partners? Or are the global shippers 
global suppliers and global consumers and the international trade system going to have to play also a much bigger role in, in let's say, remapping how we trade around the world, you know, beyond just what navies can do? There is really no benefit to anyone to disrupt global shipping. Um, I think this is a very unique case. I think in most cases, right, it's going to be much more targeted and much more of a regional focus. For example, China yeah. enforcing, um, restricting shipping to Taiwan, for example. Uh, yes, that's a disruption of global shipping, but that's much more targeted and focused. Uh, the Chinese of all countries would be, uh, would suffer immense losses if there was disruption to global shipping, right? So it's definitely not in their interest. I don't think it's really in anyone's interest, right? Um, the Russians, for example, for about two or three months, right? Um, all these sanctions were getting thrown in place. They shifted their market and then things sort of normalized back out after a few months. That's why you only saw an oil price spike for a couple months because quickly the traders, um, and, um, those countries involved in that trade just started rerouting things. So the market was very dynamic in that sense. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think anyone really seeks to benefit from disrupting global trade. So I can't foresee a world where, um, there's this immense burden in terms of having to protect the entire globe per se, right? But it is going to be a challenge to uphold uh, the ability for particular countries to trade in, from a regional perspective. There are a lot of countries on the Red Sea that want to develop it for tourism. And there's a massively interesting um, uh, marine life in the Red Sea, uh, the coral reefs and the fish and all that. Can we imagine a world where the Red Sea really becomes a tourism hub? And to what degree does the global community have to focus on, you know, the the, the environmental and aquatic, if I can call it, I'm not sure the word, marine health side of this and not just the shipping through the Red Sea? I mean, you know, how, how should we think about all the different aspects of what the Red Sea represents? Well, I think that's up for the for example, the UAE and the Saudis to decide, right? That's, that's yeah. their water. That's their ambition and their goal. Um, and yet we have not really seen a significant reaction to what's going on yeah. in the Bab el-Mendeb. Um, yeah. And they're some of the most directly affected countries. So I think what we have really is this Iran issue being, being a bear, being something that we're really trying to decide uh, how to navigate, how to address, uh, because if we get it wrong, there's a much larger regional implication here. I think most countries, right, they don't want conflict. They don't, it's not to anyone's benefit, um, yeah. especially a conflict in the Middle East right now, which is what we're seeing, right? It has the the flashpoint potential to really spill over into a much broader regional conflict. So I think a lot of countries are being a little bit coy right now for a very good reason. Um, I also want to point out something because it's related to this uh, about China, which is that there are kind of two Chinas in the world right now that are not fully understood by a lot of Americans and by Washington. 
there's the sort of nasty China in its near abroad and what it's inflicting on Taiwan and Hong Kong and the South China Sea and Uyghurs and the Indian border. And, you know, there's sort of dozen issues around China where China's sort of the big bad boy in its neighborhood and acting in a sort of hegemonic way. And then there's this China all over the world that's trading with everybody, that's not taking their share of the burden on international security and international norms, international um, cooperation that free rides on all the American things the Americans in the West do to keep the shipping lakes open and markets open and um, kind of wants to just make money. They're kind of venal, you know, and yet, but they're not really threatening anybody. I think a lot of Americans are like, uh, particularly in Congress, obsessed with China taking over Africa and China taking over Europe, when in fact, they're just trying to make a buck. Uh, and they don't really want to have to be responsible for the global affair, you know, running global affairs. Um uh, uh, and, and so if we, but, but if we turn back to the Red Sea, there was this really interesting moment, uh, recently where the Chinese told the Iranians to tell the Houthis to cut it out. Uh, and there was this, this was this rare moment where China wasn't really taking a leadership role, like at the UN or at defending shipping or something, but they were just saying to the, the terrorizing party, you're bad for our business. And it wasn't clear if the Houthis really got the message, but I was, I'm, I was wondering what your thoughts are in terms of the, the Chinese role here and all this. Yeah. The dichotomy. I mean, yeah, I think, think about geography, right? Yeah. What would the United States look like? What would its behaviors look like if we were surrounded by a dozen other countries and we didn't yeah. have a friendly Canada to the North and a friendly Mexico to the South? Yeah. Um, would we be, terrorizing our neighbors and then acting like good boys overseas. Um, I don't know, perhaps. Um, so I think that's kind of the big, the big highlight to that piece. Um, but like I said earlier, I mean, the Chinese economy is responsible for exports that are just exponential overseas. Right. And so there's no benefit to them to have this disruption. Uh, And so they're going to do everything in their power to keep things normal. Um, and, and keep themselves pumping things out because they're also an economy that is facing significant, significant demographic challenges. Um, we're seeing the collapse of a number of sectors, uh, particularly development, right? Construction and development, housing. Um, a lot of those major companies collapsing with tens of billions of dollars in debt. Um, we know their population is going to be probably half of what it is by 2050, I believe, which is mind-blowing. Contrast 330 million people in the United States, let's cut that in half in the next 30 years. If I said that, and we thought we knew that that was the reality, people would be freaking out. We'd be running around like chickens with our heads cut off. We'd have no idea what to do. And so I think there's a lot of challenges for China right now. Uh, and shipping is probably the last thing they want to worry about uh, because it's what kind of keeps their economy going. Um, okay. Now I'm going to wrap it back um, uh, sort of uh, in another direction here. Um, uh, we haven't talked about the East coast of Africa, about, you know, Eritrea and, and, and Ethiopia and the new deal with Somaliland and the Egyptian East coast and the Sudanese East coast and uh all, all of the uh, sort of African countries that are silent in the face mm. of what's going on here. Yep. Um, uh, I think it, um, it behooves them, you know, if this area is going to develop in a peaceful way 
uh, and we've been dealing with that piracy problem for a long time, it behooves them uh, to start speaking out and saying, you know, we don't want to live in a world where, you know, one half of a country can bring global shipping to a halt. You know, we all lose we, and we all benefit when uh, when commerce is, is in this area. We, I know where they're quiet, you know, because they, 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 they think they, they think they suffer more than they gain by keeping quiet. But, um, um, you know, what's the best mechanism for countries to get together and defend global shipping, you know, rhetorically and then in actions, you know, is it the UN? Is it, is it IMO? I don't know if there are other maritime organizations like, you know, how, how do countries organize for the world you're talking about where everyone's sort of, um, uh, contributes. Well, I think you raise an interesting point. Um, I have in mind in particular Egypt, right? They yeah. govern the Suez Canal. They receive billions of dollars of years in fees to for vessels transiting the Suez Canal. And these countries that sort of benefit from this trade regionally have been very silent. And I think I have to ask myself, do they think this is as big as the Americans perceive it to be? Or do they see this as sort of a temporary disruption and or a just cause, perhaps? Um, I don't think we've heard from them, so we can't say. Uh, but I think that's something to consider. Perhaps they see more benefit to the disruption than they do the negatives. And so I think part of the challenge for the United States and those who are really perceive this as an enormous threat going forward are going to have to delicately draw out of these countries an explanation for why there has been less uproar, why there has been less sort of engagement. Uh, perhaps part of it has to do with supporting the Palestinian cause, and they see this truly as an extension of that cause. Uh, and I think that's where the challenge is, right? For a country like the United States, this is perhaps uh, a challenge for the Palestinian cause and also an extension of the Iranians trying to get the United States to get back to the table to, to re-up itself on the Iran deal uh, and get back to sort of this uh, attempt to normalize relationships. Um, I think those are the things we have to kind of draw through and understand. And I think it's going to take time to get context from these various countries before we have a, a more full picture of what's going on. Are there any, um, let's say this goes on for a long time. Let's say this Red Sea crisis doesn't end in three months, but it goes on for 10 years. Um, how does the global community react, you know, like, and this is assuming the U S Navy just doesn't pummel the Houthis into submission to the point where uh, they can't do anything. Um, uh, maybe with large civilian casualties or, you know, et cetera. Um, what, 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 what happens to shipping if choke points become even chokier? And, and what's I think the you'll, solution? you'll just see longer you know? routes. It, it, the market yeah. will always shift. Um, yeah. things will get a little more expensive. Um, I think the biggest concern right now is we have global warming, which we know is largely contributed to carbon emissions. Most ships are still running on carbon-based fuels. We haven't had this alternative fuels transition yet. 
uh, because the technology is really still up and coming and the shipping sector hasn't really put its eggs into one basket yet to decide and, and made the transition. Uh, and so the issue now also is we have an exponential increase in carbon emissions from shipping at a time when literally months ago, the International Maritime Organization just authorized and, and passed through sort of carbon reduction targets. Um, and there's been this real multi-year effort to reduce carbon output from shipping. There was a lot of really um, lobbying by folks like John Kerry uh, towards the shipping industry to say, hey, you're not doing your part. You're not you're not contributing enough to this this cause. And so that's one of the big things that's on people's minds right now is, yes, the market can can change. It can it can adapt quickly. But now we have to take into consideration this increased cost and resources. Um, uh, we should add, I think, two things now on Yemen, which are a little bit different from what we've been talking about, but worth considering. Uh, one is use the phrase, I think Yemen is uh, has nothing to lose. Um, the phrase I've been using is uh, Yemen's going for broke, meaning they're, they're not thinking calibrated actions, logical outcomes. They're thinking, we just need to blow up stuff, right, to, to, to win. And part of what they're trying to win here is um, the support of Yemenis people that don't really like them, to get back to your earlier point, um, but who care for the Palestinians. And they, they're hoping that if they just blow up enough ships and interdict enough traffic in the Red Sea, people will like them because it's supposedly – um, for Palestine, but but the the specificities of the Houthis situation and their their weak position politically in their own country has has, has created a disruption here. Now, in the old days, the U.S. the U.S. used to just send in the Marines or find a proxy that would like you know kill the leadership in a country and uh, and then uh, um, and, and and try to install a better system and. We used to do that sort of through the 70s. We sort of, you know, rewound back to it in 2003 with the toppling of Iraq. But generally, the general trend of the last several decades is the U.S. doesn't try to just topple governments, you know, in order to get its way. So um, what we're going to have to do here is um, through a combination of carrots and sticks, and I'm not saying that their sticks should be used, uh, convince the Houthis to lay back, to lay off, uh, to, to not do it anymore. And try to create incentives for them to um, to become better citizens of the world. Um, I do not see that happening immediately or anytime really soon. Um, but I do see, uh, and I'm always do this as an ex diplomat and as a, somebody who's sort of a glass half full of international affairs professional. I do see missed opportunities and, and other opportunities here. Um, to dialogue with the Houthis, to dialogue with other parties in the region, to sort of move us in the right direction rather than the wrong direction. Um, uh, uh, Houthis control, I think, what about two thirds of the population in Yemen. They're 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 there to stay. They're not going anywhere. No one's going to topple them. I think anytime soon. Um, uh, 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 but they have a credibility problem, and I think uh, one thing that the U.S. is not as good as they used to be. Um, to some degree, is naming and shaming. I think a lot mm -hmm. of what we've been talking about in this podcast is like how devastating this is for several things that you and I know about. And I don't see the U.S. government, the international community, the U.N., a lot of organizations saying, hey, Houthis, 
you know, this is just unacceptable what you're doing, you know, and, and naming and shaming the Houthis and making them uh, look bad. What is your, um, what is your thought on, um, uh, and you talked about the quiet countries of Africa, the East coast of Africa, you know, what, what is the resp- responsibility of international organizations and the various maritime conglomerations that you talk about, including all of these African uh, coastal nations, you know, how, how do we organize the message? How does the word get out? This is unacceptable. Like how, how, how can the international community um, make the, um, the Houthis um, a pariah in a new kind of way, a, a pariah that doesn't want, you know, humans to interact through commerce, you know, how, how does that message get out more? Well, I don't think the international community has decided whether the Houthis should be a pariah. And I think that's the problem. There's sort of this decision-making crisis. Um, I think most of the time, conflicts can be easily resolved. The issue, it comes down more to what do we want the world to look like? And oftentimes, the solution is not the solution that we want the world to look like. And so we sort of wait it out, and we, we look for opportunities to... Uh, create change to perhaps set things on a new course. And so I don't think those options have, if they exist, if they will exist in the future, they haven't made themselves apparent yet. And so really that's sort of the challenge at the moment. Um, That was the challenge of the Biden administration deciding to withdraw from Afghanistan, right? We sat in Afghanistan for years beyond probably what we should have because we sort of didn't see an opportunity to create the world that we wanted. And so we waited and we waited and we waited and that opportunity never came. And so we said, we need to get out. And so it's, it's possible that that sort of situation might occur with the Houthis and it's perhaps what has already occurred. Uh, The Saudis have sort of clapped their hands together and said, you know, this is just, this issue is becoming a pain in the neck and it's not really changing. Um, And so, hey, United States, you know, you get to deal with it and let's figure something out. And so now we're sort of at this point of, okay, what do we want the world to look like? Can we make that possible under the current conditions? And if not, it's, it's going to be a waiting game. I have a slightly different take on Afghanistan as you and I um, uh, thought of it just because when you said the world we want, because one of the ironies of Afghanistan is that according to all the polling and the anecdotal data, if you know it, about 75% of Afghanistani, uh, Afghan, Afghans never wanted to live under the Taliban, still don't want to live under the Taliban, are miserable now. And, and we sort of we sort of won the argument without realizing it, you know, like... Afghanistan was modernizing, it was corrupt as heck, and the Taliban, Taliban get, get hitting the government. But the, Afghanistan was modernizing, and now we have, uh, you know, a worse situation than before because uh, uh, nobody wants the Taliban in power, but but um, uh, 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 and no one has to knows how to bring back things the way they were in Afghanistan during that twenty year period. Um, but um, and the West lost a lot of clout, you know, uh, because we gave up. I right, mean, but again, it, what did the, we have the conditions for the world tw- we wanted we, weren't making right. themselves apparent, and but so twenty five hundred troops and nineteen thousand contractors keeping keeping the Taliban at bay. So, I, I think 
they should have waited. But but I, I mean I, I mean I take your point that we didn't get what we want in Afghanistan. But I would argue that we already have what we want in Afghanistan on one level, which is that Afghans were moving out of of a, of a really terrible past in which very conservative elements are ruled over mm-hmm. them, and now because of our failure, we've 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 permitted and and are living with the reinstallation of, you know, or in some degrees a worse government than before. And so guess what's going to happen? Afghanistan is going to have another war. It's going to be mm. nasty at some point, you know, like, cause, cause, cause you can't like, you can't run the world and sort of make everything your way the way you want it, but you also can't neglect total failed states and, and, and governments that are hated by their people uh, because that's going to blow up again too. So, um, so, uh, you know, I just, I just, uh, I was really in heart, heartened when I looked deep and hard at the Afghanistan polling and, and understood that the Afghans want what we want. It's yeah, just, no, the, the I, Taliban I took it that, away. The Taliban I think took it, it comes away. down to, <laughs> yeah. if there is going to be another conflict there, that becomes a regional and a global issue. That's not yep. the United States there. Um, and so, yeah, I think yep. it's, it's evolved. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, and nine well, eleven is what sucked us in there, but there was otherwise no other reason for the U S to be, you know, deeply yeah. involved in any Afghan conflict. Yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you. Um, so, uh, um, maybe one last, uh, uh, Houthi element that we haven't talked about, uh, Yemen is full of ISIS and full of Al Qaeda. They control swaths of the Eastern part of Yemen one of the reasons tribal people in Yemen support the Houthis without liking them is that the Houthis are a rampart against the other extremist elements in Yemen. Um, you know, what, what are your thoughts on um, whether that opens opportunity for dialogue with the Houthis? I do know from my own uh, recent conversations with U.S. government officials that there are these really interesting back channels um, of communication between the U.S. and the Houthis when it comes to hostages and crews and, you know, other things. Uh, um, so, you know, what are your thoughts uh, from your vantage point about dialoguing with the Houthis and finding a common ground and, and maybe turn this around that way a little bit? Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. I mean, there's there's really no greater perceived enemy of the United States in recent years than ISIS. So, um, And I think, you know, in places like Somalia as well with Al Shabaab, um, right? We have these sort of factions that are totally anti-U.S. existence, um, and so finding an opening, finding openings to counter those those elements, right? I mean, I do think though, you know, you have to consider, for example, when we countered the Soviets in Afghanistan. And we went to the Mujahideen and armed them and, and basically enabled them to counter the Soviet incursion. Well, what did that faction end up doing 15, 20 years later um, was sort of counter to our broader interests. So there's a bit of danger in kind of using this this opportunity to look at you use an use one enemy to go after a greater enemy, um, I think is a slippery slope. 
Um, we're nearing the end of episode three of this like, episode, which has covered sort of the Red Sea crisis and the uh, implications for global shipping and the future of trade and all that. Um, I have one final thought, uh, but why don't, I'll give you, why don't you take the first final thought and then I'll, I'll, I'll give mine. Do you have a final point? The biggest takeaway is yeah. we, I think we don't know what to make of this yet. I think it's disruptive. It's, it's perceived to be a huge issue. But we really don't understand the long-term implications yet, if there are any. Um, and so the U.S. has some inward thinking to do, but it also has some significant roadwork ahead of it uh, in sort of talking to its partners, its allies, its, its, its close friends in the Middle East and saying, hey, um, what are your thoughts? What are your perspectives? And really coming to some sort of consensus, because I think this, be, this is an international issue. This is as much as it feels like it's, it's a focused on the U S and Israel issue. Um, it really is broader in context. Uh, my final thought is, you know, most of what most of the people in Yemen want, and I've met a lot of them over the years are very similar to what most Americans want. Um, the Houthis have a lot of common interests uh, with the Americans. If we just got past this this business, um, I found it very interesting today in my private meetings with USG officials how happy they were that the U.S. is talking about a Palestinian state and how much um, uh, um, uh, credit the U.S. is getting around the uh, Arab, Muslim, and African world and developing nations uh, because they were willing to kind of bite the bullet and say, "Hey, maybe a Palestinian state needs to be talked about here," um, and um, if little by little the U.S. can take these grievance points um, with the various peoples of the Middle East, you know, sort of off the table or think outside the box or show that we care about what they're mad about, um, uh, you know, the future is going to look a little bit better. And uh, this is the tricky part because it's always easy to take a hard line, you know, in every part of the world, including the United States. Always easy to take a hard line and imagine that that's the world that's that's going to be. Um, it's going to be better when, in fact, you know, if you spend a little time figuring out why the other guy's pissed off, uh, you can usually figure out that there's some legitimacy there. And if you address the other guy's pain, he might, you know, address your pain a little bit. And there's there's openings for uh, um, for you know a common future where uh, everybody wins, uh, including the Houthis in that area of northern Yemen. Yeah, yeah. Well, Bill, thanks for the discussion and. I'll catch back up with you when you get back to the U.S. and safe travels back from Tunisia. Thank you. Tunisia. Thank you. Tunisia. Thank you. Tunisia.